transatlantic relationship, U.S. and Europe is the cornerstone going back to the end of the war. It's getting worse. The European Union has continued to have challenges. NATO has obviously faced a lot of stresses in the last couple of years. The U.S.-China relationship, again, is very obvious and also figures elsewhere on the list. Russia's relationship with the West is only getting more complicated and more contentious. All of these relationships are getting worse. Every single one of them. This week on The Current Account, we're talking Eurasia Group's top risks for 2019. We're joined by Willis Sparks, Global Macro Director for the firm. Willis, welcome to uh, to the podcast. Thank you, Alex. Happy New Year. Thank you. You too. For those listening who might be a little bit less familiar with what Eurasia Group does the first week of January every year, what's a top risk? It's the coolest thing that we do in terms of process. I mean, for, for people that even maybe have a vague idea of what Eurasia Group does, you know, we're, we're the people who figure out what's happening in international politics, regional politics, and the politics of individual countries in a way that is market relevant for our clients, people trying to do business or people trying to invest in those countries, regions, or, or who have vulnerability to the global economy more generally. Top Risks is our report that we issue on the first Monday of every year, where we say, here are 10 stories that we're looking at for the next year that we really want to highlight. It's a, it's a ranking. It's one through 10, one being more important, 10 being least important. The way that we rank them is we'll take a combination of what is most likely to happen, and what would have the biggest impact on the world if it did. That tends to go higher up the list. And then as we go lower down the list, there are things that are either less likely to happen or less impactful for the world if they did happen, or both. So that's what it is. And we, we, we put out this list of, of top 10 risks, and we have something called red herrings at the end, which are the stories that maybe you're reading about in the media that you're thinking about or worried about that people think might be a big deal that we think are actually overrated. So kind of the opposite of top risk, the, the places where we think that there's going to be less than meets the eye to those stories this year for very particular reasons. And talk to us a little bit about the craft of this, the the process. It just doesn't come from Ian Bremer, you sitting down and and writing these 10 uh, risks down. Um, How does this list, this process, the analysis behind it come to be? When I say that it's the coolest process we have here, uh, that the process is, is specifically what I'm talking about. So I've been here going on 15 years now, so I've seen there have been so much that's happened in the world. If you think about everything that's happened in the world in the last 15 years. But the process has basically remained the same, and here's how it works. We have a big company-wide meeting sometime around the, the beginning of October. That's when we start to really think about these things because we know that the gestation period of thinking about how exactly to sculpt each individual story is going to change over time in response to events and in response to the way we think about them. So basically what will happen is we'll, we'll, we'll have all of the major Eurasia Group offices on a video call. And we're all sitting in a big conference room, and Ian will just talk for two or three minutes at the top and say, here's what I'm thinking about, maybe maybe more like six or seven minutes, honestly. <laughs> Ten. But, we'll call it ten. Okay, call it well, eight. All right. Uh, and, and Ian will say, look, here's what I'm thinking, but, but I know this because I've seen him do it many times. He's very careful not to say so much that he 
guides the people in the room. People in the room have already had a heads up. This is top risk meeting number one. Come with your ideas. And so he talks in very general terms that are not designed to sort of tip his hand about his own thinking about Europe or East Asia or the Middle East, whatever. What is the one top risk that we had came out in January that by the end of the year you thought just best exemplifies what top risks are all about? Which one did we just completely hit out of the park one year? You know, I don't remember what year it was. I'd have to go back and look. It's probably been seven or eight years ago now. But we were trying to get at this idea um, of a lack of leadership, that part of what's driving risk at the international level is unlike in the old days when it was clear whose job it was to put out this fire or that fire to force sites to compromise on, on this issue or that that no one was stepping up to play that role. And a person who is actually no longer in the firm said, oh, it's kind of like it's not a G7 world or a G20 world, it's a G0 world. And we had one of those moments where it just got quiet for a second. I remember looking over Ian and sort of nodding. And obviously that turned into a book that Ian wrote, and it's turned into the name of the media company. And the summit in Japan. And the summit in Japan. And so G Zero is a gift that keeps on giving. But what I like about it is I do think that in a really simple way it captures what we're trying to say, which is there is no group of people that can get together into a room representative of the most powerful forces in the world and say, all right, none of us wants to deal with this, but we're going to have to solve this problem by doing X, Y, and Z. So let's get to this year's risks. I'm not going to go through all of them and ask you about them. I think that would be uh, boring for most listeners. And uh, they're all on our website. We make the entire report available to the public. So go to the Eurasia Group website, download it for the comprehensive analysis. Um, But I do want to start with the number one top risk for this year because I think it's a really interesting one that really frames the broader geopolitical risk landscape. And we're calling it bad seeds. Yeah, needs a little bit of explanation. But effectively what that means, uh, at least the way I understand it, is that most of the key drivers of the overall, of overall geopolitical stability um, are kind of all headed in the wrong direction. Now, there are no immediate catalysts necessarily to make any or all of those blow up into a crisis this year, but they're planting seeds for future crises um, that are likely to come during a time or against a backdrop, an institutional backdrop, where there's not a lot of resilience to deal with it. Do you agree? Are there areas yeah. you would emphasize more or less in terms of how to frame that? And what are some examples of some of those bad seeds being planted? You just explained it very well. The premise is, and this is related to the G0 idea, but the premise is that we live today in a world that is in transition. We were living a generation ago in the post-Cold War world when it seemed clear that U.S., Western European-style democracy, rule of law, capitalism had carried the day. And now we've got real challengers like China and a different kind of challenger in Russia and and some other smaller countries that didn't necessarily follow along the path the way a lot of people in the West thought that they would. And so we've had this gradual erosion of the old system because there's an erosion of the pillars that held up the old system. Now, to to be less abstract about it, um, this is one of those situations where we're all sitting around in a meeting and going, okay, well, what's the big crisis for this year? And we didn't see one. And, 
you know, there have been years past where we said, we're really going to focus on Europe this year, or we're going to focus on emerging markets generally, or something going on in the U.S. But this year, we said, we don't see any big single crisis. But when we look at some of the, both the, the, the crucial partnerships that have given the world its stability, and we look at the relationships that are not partnerships, that are potential rivalries, that are linchpins, I suppose, for, for stability. The transatlantic relationship, U.S. and Europe is the cornerstone going back to the end of the war. It's getting worse. <laughs> we know that. I don't even need to make that case. The European Union has continued to have challenges. NATO has obviously uh, faced a lot of stresses in the last couple of years. The U.S.-China relationship, again, is very obvious and also figures elsewhere on the list. Russia's relationship with the West is only getting more complicated and more contentious. The rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia and the Middle East is changing, but it's also something that you've got to keep an eye on. And the impact of China's rise both on the rest of Asia and on the Washington's conception of the U.S. role. All of these relationships are getting worse, every single one of them. And so we... The, the message that we have about this year in top risk, number one, the reason why we're talking about bad seeds is... There's not one crisis that we're going to highlight this year. Yeah, there are going to be plenty of forest fires again this year. There's a number of things that could go wrong in the U.S.-Chinese relationship or in cyberspace or, or what have you. But, but really what we're looking at is an acceleration of the erosion of these partnerships and these institutions that are gradually fragmenting the world order that we know. This is not apocalyptic because, you know, we are headed towards some future order. We just can't see that order yet. We don't know what it looks like, and we don't know what it will take to get there. So this isn't necessarily, you know, we're headed over a cliff, but we are headed through the rapids. Boy, I'm mixing a lot of metaphors. <laughs> we are headed through the There's rapids. There's a dark forest in there, right? <laughs> With rapids. I think rapids is Trees. actually a great way of looking at it. Like, we suspect there's every reason to believe that there's – that there's calmer waters on the other side, but we got to get there. Yeah. And some people are going to pop out of the boat this year. And, and um, so, you know, that's what we wanted to highlight is the fact that there's a lot of longer-term issues that are really important that are getting noticeably worse and are going to continue in that direction in 2019. So I suspect a lot of people are going to listen to that and they're going to say, yeah, of course, that's mostly about the Trump administration. And one of the points... I know you make, yeah. I make when I have these sorts of discussions with with people is that no, it's it's really structural. Trump changes some things to be sure. The face of this is maybe it's a little accelerated, maybe some of the uh, the relationships deteriorate faster, but it's not primarily or even mostly about Trump. It's really deeply structural, right? The transatlantic relationship was not in good shape even when we thought Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. And you know, NATO is still looking to find what role it might play in a post-Cold War world. That question hasn't been answered. And U.S.-Chinese relations have been very contentious for many years. And U.S.-Russia, obviously, you know, what Russia did in Ukraine in 2014, that was before Trump arrived. So we're certainly not arguing that Trump doesn't matter. I would, you know, 
Trump is accelerant. If the metaphor is forest fire, Trump really speeds up these things by calling into question the value of the things that we are talking about are coming apart. Well, maybe NATO isn't really valuable, and maybe the transatlantic relationship is just an opportunity for the Europeans to free ride on the Americans, and maybe we should have good relations with Russia and let them do what they want in the Middle East, and maybe, you know, we can have a trade war with China, and it will be easy to win, and that will change everything, and that'll be good. So he's definitely... he's. He's making the, the the bumpy ride bumpier, but these things have been building for a generation. They're not caused by Donald Trump. So U.S.-China mentioned it a couple of times in, yeah, in that no, Number two on our list. Perfect segue, almost as if we had planned this. Um, the, <laughs> the, the second risk is, is U.S.-China. Now, that was, I'd argue, the dominant political risk issue of, of 2018, right? Yeah. So the, the trade war, the impact that had on a lot of multinational companies, market confidence, uh, but it's it's still a risk for 2019. How does it evolve? Um, what is the kind of relative weight you have in that between the current discussions over trying to resolve the trade war, uh, perhaps faltering, and then some of the other dimensions, the security dimension in, in the bilateral relationship, and then the technology element, which has become big as well? There, I mean, you know, this is a good example of what we were talking about, about Trump and before Trump. Um, because the U.S.-China rivalry has been growing for some time. And obviously, mainly what we're talking about in terms of front-page news when we talk about U.S.-China is hundreds of billions of dollars in tariffs and a new deadline that people are hoping is going to reach some accommodation. But the reason why this is so high on our list is this conflict, and it is increasingly a conflict and not simply a rivalry, goes way beyond trade. The U.S.-Chinese relationship, the relationship between the world's largest economy and the world's number two, the established power and the rising power, is now fundamentally broken. It may have been going that way for a long time, but Trump has certainly accelerated the process. And when I say it's broken, what I mean is, let's say in a best-case scenario on the trade front that the U.S. and Chinese negotiators get in a room, make a deal. They come out shaking hands and smiling on February the 28th, and markets respond with a big rally, and everybody's happy. Trade wars off, tariffs go away. These two sides are never going to trust one another in the same way again. Because this trade war that we've been living in has exposed the vulnerability on both sides. And the first thing they're going to do on the day after they all shake hands and celebrate their new deal is to start finding ways to reduce that vulnerability, which means reducing the ways in which the U.S. and, Chinese, the US and China are connected, the way they're economically connected, the way they're technologically related to one another. I get this question a lot, Alex, I'm sure you do too, in speaking events or in the media, you know, is this a new Cold War? And I always say, no, it's not a new Cold War, and I start running through the list of differences between U.S.-China 21st century and U.S.-Soviet Union 20th century. But there is a sense in which it is a Cold War. You mentioned technology. What we're seeing here is that technology has become not just a hot economic issue between the U.S. and China. It's become a hot security issue. There are all these fears about national security and the ways in which intellectual property is being stolen uh, in ways that may allow espionage and potentially even sabotage if there were uh, a future conflict. So here we are at a moment when we're working toward the development of 5G technology, which is going to be the big breakthrough that creates smart cities and changes everything. 
It was not necessarily inevitable a few years ago that the U.S. and China could not have worked together on 5G. U.S. and Chinese companies, maybe even the U.S. and Chinese governments, it was certainly not a sure thing, but it was possible that they could. That seems really unlikely at this point because there is so much distrust on both sides that's been exacerbated by this trade fight that it means that China will develop its own 5G and the U.S. will develop its 5G, and they may not be compatible, which may put a lot of other countries and companies around the world in the very uncomfortable position of having to choose one side or the other, the way smaller countries had to choose sides during the Cold War of the 20th it's century. Separate standards, separate supply chains. Exactly. If your 5G network is not compatible with with one side or the other, well, that's just an enormous loss of revenue. It's an enormous loss of efficiency. It's an enormous loss of innovative potential. Two things I think that people often miss a little bit about the U.S.-China dynamics right now. Um, one is, again, there's this tendency to attribute a lot of the changes in the relationship to Trump himself and, yeah. and the administration. Uh, but one of the really interesting things when you're in Washington, you talk to people in Congress or the intelligence intelligence agencies, it's really been a bipartisan consensus Absolutely. that has been driving a lot of the concerns, particularly on the technology side. The other thing that I think people sometimes miss is they think that the Trump administration's policy on trade and, and commercial and the commercial relationship, broadly speaking, is really just about changing Chinese behavior. But what it's also about is changing the behavior of American companies, making them less Great point. reliant and on, on, on China for supply chains. Don't give them your intellectual property. independent of a truce. You may get a deal on trade, but as you pointed out, it doesn't solve most of the issues. Now, if you take the most cynical possible political attitude toward Donald Trump. You might say that Donald Trump did his homework before he decided to run for president, and he thought if a Republican is going to win in 2016, that person has got to win Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. You just look at the electoral map. You're not going to win if you don't win those states. How do you do that? Well, how about you you, you blame China for a lot of the job losses. You say China has stolen jobs from the manufacturing heartland of the United States. And that gains you a new audience that Republicans have not had for a while in that industrial Midwest heartland. And as you say, Democrats have been banging this drum. Bernie Sanders, if you listen to Bernie Sanders on the campaign trail, there wasn't so much difference between Trump and Bernie Sanders in the substance of what they were accusing China of having done. So, hey, it worked. <laughs> you know, Donald Trump won those states because there were people who bought that line of argument and who said, yeah, China really is a problem. And in a lot of ways, a lot of other countries around the world agree that China is a problem. So I've been at Eurasia Group for six years. You've been here for over 15. Uh, I've never seen the U.S. as a, as a risk. Some elements of, of the U.S.'s relationship with other countries, sure. But we've never had domestic politics as a risk. And last year, we explicitly said it's a red herring. Yeah. Uh, what's changed? Well, one thing is the Democrats won the House of Representatives. That, that's one huge obvious change because um, Donald Trump was already embattled on a number of fronts. But now that the Democrats have subpoena power in the House, and in theory they can just send a letter over to the IRS and say, we'd like to see his tax returns now, 
um, that they can require even members of Donald Trump's family to come up and testify under oath. There's a whole level of direct pressure um, that is all going to get caught up in the image of Nancy Pelosi, but it's a lot broader than any one individual figure. Um, that's one very obvious thing I think that's changed. And not just the fact that Democrats have this new power, but the fact that Donald Trump can be blamed for the Democratic gains. Because, you know, a lot of people who support Donald Trump, I mean, it's clear that Republicans generally in, in very significant majority numbers continue to support Donald Trump. But uh, losing that election, losing 40 seats in the House, losing by nine percentage points in the popular vote has clearly gotten the attention of a lot of people in the Republican Party. And while they may not fault him for saying outrageous things or, or being offensive, doing the things that drive Democrats and people on the left crazy, they're not happy about the fact that not only did they, the Republicans perform very poorly in the midterms, but there's not even an acknowledgement that something's got to change. So here we are, and this is why this is such an important risk. Donald Trump approached the midterms trying to use immigration and the border as a wedge issue that was really going to fire up his base and get them out and save the day for the Republicans who were lagging in the polls. And it clearly did not work. And here he is doubling down on a border wall at the moment. I need my wall. This is a national emergency. And I'm going to get my wall. And the Democrats will probably try to challenge him in court on that and say, you don't have the right to declare a national emergency. And you can't just have the Pentagon build your wall. And most presidents will say, all right, if the law is unclear, I'm going to back away from this. I'm not going to pursue this strategy. Here we are at the beginning of the year, and Donald Trump is probably already saying, okay, sue me. We're at the point now where he's saying, I'll test this in court, and if I don't like the judgment that I get from the court, I'll say, that's an Obama judge, and I'll appeal. This is the beginning of the year. Wait till we have more Democrats running for president calling Trump names. Wait till Nancy Pelosi really gets started. Wait till it starts to look like Robert Mueller may actually finally really be wrapping up. Wait till Donald Trump Jr. is, you know, is maybe in the crosshairs in a way that he's not yet, or some other member of Trump's family or his entourage. The pressure is only going to go up. And President Trump's willingness to push beyond the normal norms and boundaries in politics is going to leave the Democrats feeling like, wait, we've got to rethink our assumptions about what's possible here. Because if he decides to ignore a court order, what do we do? And that's, that's what <laughs> we're talking about. Not used to presidents saying, bring it on, right? Well, and, you know, I, and, 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 and Ian and Cliff have made the point. It's like, look, we believe that U.S. institutions are absolutely strong enough to handle this. But we're not as sure about that in 2019 as we have been at any time in the past. We think that the courts are going to carry the day here. But... Donald Trump's ability to say, well, I'm just going to go to a different court or I don't accept this ruling or to try to work around the court and have Democrats trying to improvise a strategy to deal with that suggests that you may start to look at this as a game that doesn't have a clear referee at certain times. And that's scary when you're talking about the world's only superpower. One of the things I was just thinking, I'm sure you've had a similar experience when you travel to Asia or somewhere else to talk about top risks, you know, a lot of... A lot of us will be making trips in the next couple of weeks and months. Yeah. 
there's always a slightly different reaction compared to people in the U.S. as to what risk really resonates with them or, or scares them. I have a feeling this year the one that, that people abroad are going to just be like, wow, is, is the, the U.S. domestic politics. Right? I think it's true. And, you know, I, I, I go to Japan. We, you know, we have an office in Tokyo and we um, and, and we often, I know you do too, frequently travel there. I was there in November, and, and they basically, the message that we got was, we want to hear about the U.S., and we want to hear about the U.S.-China, and the rest of it can wait till later. Yeah. And, I, and I expect that, although I'm going to run through the full list of top risks, and they will take notes while I'm talking, that their really keen interest is going to be in Donald Trump and U.S.-China. They may take naps, too. <laughs> no, naps, yeah, notes and naps, like, they sometimes do both at the same time, which is an amazing an thing if you've never uh, seen it. <laughs> uh, the last three risks, uh, eight, nine, ten, are all sort of discrete country risks. All country risks. Or kind of traditional emerging market political risk. Uh, Mexico, Ukraine, Nigeria. Walk us through each of those. Mexico, I would say, does fall squarely in the category of traditional emerging market risk, except that you know, you've got the first leftist, quote unquote, president of Mexico since the 1930s. And so we are in a different political environment. And not only is uh, Mr. Uh, Lopez Obrador popular, but he's got solid majorities in the in the Congress. So he has the power to get things done. He ran on a mandate f for change. He is the embodiment of change, again, because he's a man of the left. And there's a lot of optimism that he's going to solve a lot of problems that, frankly, we're pretty skeptical that anyone is going to solve. It's no knock on Lopez Obrador, who's a very serious figure, successful mayor of Mexico City, respected historian, on and on. But the security situation in Mexico is not something that somebody's going to come up with a two-year plan and solve. There's a lot of economic stagnation issues, and you're living across the border from Donald Trump. There's, there are a lot of baked-in institutional issues that it's going to take him time to solve. And the, the, the part of the story that fascinates me is if you get elected because you promise change— you better deliver change. And if people think that you don't know what you're doing or you weren't totally honest about your promises for change, they can turn on you in a hurry. And we have already seen an example of, you know, Lopez Obrador hasn't been in power that long, but just in the last couple of weeks, there's a story that he's trying to address the problem of organized crime groups that are stealing gas out of pipelines in various parts of the country. And Mr. Lopez Obrador's solution to that was to turn the pipelines off to try to figure out where the criminal gangs were operating. Well, the problem is that has created severe gasoline shortages. Wait, pipelines actually do something? For, <laughs> for consumers in a lot of parts of Mexico who are saying, I love you, I don't have gasoline. <laughs> you know, and... We're, we still have serious security problems where newly elected mayors are being murdered as fast as they can take the oath of office in certain parts of the country. There are a lot of long-term structural issues that we're concerned he's not going to be able to deal with. He may become increasingly erratic, like a lot of politicians. Doesn't like criticism. Um, he is a serious person. He's we're, it's not we're not talking about Venezuela. You know, this is a serious person in a country with strong political institutions. But it's going to be a bit of an adventure, particularly over this first full year of his administration. Ukraine. What's the risk there? Is this really well, a Russia risk, or yeah, is this oh, a absolutely. Ukraine risk? No, no. Well, it, it's a bit of both. But look, it's an election year in Ukraine. Um, and if you think that the Russians like interfering in, in American elections, you know, the, the, the not Petya 
uh, cyber attack, which is the worst cyber attack that we know of in the history of the world, was basically a Russian attack on Ukraine that got out of control. It was not intended to hit the rest of the world. It was badly designed, and it ended up having a global effect. That was just Russia trying to mess with Ukraine. We've already seen uh, a naval confrontation in the Black Sea between the Russian Navy and the Ukrainian Navy over access to the Sea of Azov. I won't bore you with all of the details there, but the point is um, Ukraine is the one subject on which Vladimir Putin has no sense of humor. He is not going to be the Russian leader who lost Ukraine after a thousand years of historical relationship between Russia and Ukraine. So here we are. Remember, the, the, the Orange Revolution started in 2004 over an election that got rigged. They tried to, you know, we we're headed for elections recently with Viktor Yanukovych. In 2014, it was a trade deal with Europe that set off a crisis. Here we are headed for more elections again. The Russians are going to be involved directly and indirectly. They're going to be involved in cyberspace. They're going to be active in the Black Sea. They're very likely to be making more trouble in those eastern provinces where there are Russian forces that are helping Ukrainian separatists. Um, it's going to be a hot year. And Ukraine is already a very vulnerable place because, again, on the subject of leaders who promise change, the incumbent president, Petro Poroshenko, has not delivered the change that Ukrainians wanted. The economy is still stagnant. They're not able to move closer to Europe. So th this is one of those risks that could play out in sort of bolt from the blue crises between Russia and Ukraine, either in cyberspace or real space, that really bears close watching this year. And we've had several of those over the last couple of years, so no big, you know, no, no big Absolutely. surprise. But the fact it. that it's an election year, I think, really has has Russia on edge and, and, and certainly has Ukraine on edge as well. So election-related risks, Nigeria. Nigeria, absolutely. You know, the, the, the interesting thing to me about the Nigeria story is the last election they had was a really good news story. Yeah. Because it was the first time since democracy was restored in Nigeria in 1999 when you had an election that the opposition won. And the ruling party said, yep, we lost, we recognize our loss, congratulations, and welcome the opposition into power. This is Africa's largest economy. It's one of the world's largest oil producers. It's an OPEC member. The stakes are very high. It's a very complicated country. But the guy who won that election and was supposed to make that good news story into a better news story has mainly just been sick in absentia. He's been away on mysterious medical holidays in London. Um, Boko Haram, the, 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 the terrorist group that operates mainly in the northeast of that country, has not been subdued. There are a lot of unanswered questions. And so they really haven't moved since that good news election. So now they got another election that's coming up next month. It's the first big election of the year. And you have Muhammadu Buhari running for re-election, which given his health, a lot of people thought he wouldn't do. And Atiku Abu Bakar is another... You uh, said that very well. Atiku Abu Bakar. Um, yeah, I practiced that. <laughs> it's... Uh, but is, is, is someone who basically runs a patronage network, and we, we, this is one of those elections where we think no matter who wins, it's not necessarily a good outcome. The really scary outcome would be if you get an inconclusive result, and you basically have the opposite of the last election, which was such yeah. a good news story, and you have actual violence in response so to confusion about who won. Yeah. And by the way, this is yet another in a, in a world where people are not happy with their government. This is another example of a place where 
um, people are essentially going to be choosing between two candidates that are old enough to be their grandparents. You know, this is not a system that has acknowledged the fact that, you know, yeah. the demographics of Nigeria are pretty young and the political class is pretty old. The baby boomers just will not let go. They will not let go. I thought that was just an American story. Yeah. So let's wrap up with uh, one of my favorite features of Top Risks every year is what we call red herring, stuff that the media will tell you is a big risk. But we think when you actually kick the tires on it, yeah, it might dominate headlines, but it doesn't really pose a big risk right. to business, to markets, to broader political stability. We don't have to go through all of them. What's the one that you think will surprise people the most that we're saying, don't worry about this? Jair Bolsonaro, the newly elected president of Brazil, just sworn into office a week ago, has gotten so much media attention because he's a guy of the far right. He's a former army officer. He is, you know, he is, people call him Trump of the tropics because he's, he's a guy that has done and said a lot said of some, nasty some, nasty some things. things that people find really, really, really offensive. And yet, the desire for change in Brazil after all these years of political scandal and recession and crime in cities out of control, the desire, the hunger for change was so great that they were looking for a credible change agent. And for better and for worse, this guy is a credible change agent. The reason why we list him as a red herring rather than as a risk is because, well, during the election, you know, he, he kind of waxed nostalgic about military rule in Brazil. And anytime you hear that, ears go up because the military ran Brazil from 1964 to 1985. This guy's a former army officer. So a lot of people that don't really follow Brazilian politics that closely thought, oh, my gosh, are we headed for some kind of far right military regime in Brazil? And we have this risk as a non-risk, as a red herring, precisely because we don't think that's going to happen, because we think that Brazil's institutions are too strong to allow that. The court system, which has proven itself over and over again during the Lava Jato political scandal as able to take down some of the most powerful people in the country, we think that the, the, the institutions in Brazil are strong enough to resist any push to consolidate power. And not even clear that Bolsonaro really wants that, but even if he did want that, um, Brazil is a mature country. Brazil, like Mexico, is not Venezuela. The institutions are strong. Um, maybe there will be some good that comes out of uh, the Bolsonaro presidency, L you know, much-needed reforms that have been many years in the making. Maybe he is the right political actor to get some of those things uh, through Congress. Uh, we'll see. But we're not worried about military rule in Brazil. We're not worried about Iran and Saudi Arabia going to war in the Middle East because they've got problems of their own. We're not worried about Russia and China forming some kind of anti-Western access because, frankly, they don't trust each other very much at the end of the day. So those are good examples of the kind of things that we, we think clients worry about, clients ask us about, the media asks us about that we think are really overrated as risk stories. Thanks, Willis. That was Thank fantastic. Thank you. Happy New Year.